This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. And I had this sudden feeling that I was being asked to, like, sell my dad's life, you know, to, like, make his life seem worth it to keep him on the ventilator. I wanted this doctor to think that my dad is worth it. COVID-19 is overwhelming our healthcare system. As cases increase exponentially across the United States, it's clear we just don't have enough resources to go around. For weeks, we haven't even had a reliable estimate of how many people actually have the disease because we don't have enough tests. And many hospitals are now facing shortages of masks, beds, and life-saving ventilators. Americans have watched with horror the stories from Italy and now Spain of rationing supplies and care. But rationing is already here. This is Making the Call, a podcast about how we make impossible choices. I'm Zeke Emanuel. I'm an oncologist and health policy expert. I'm Jonathan Moreno. I'm a philosopher and historian. We've both devoted our lives to the study of bioethics, to understanding what's right, what's wrong, and what it means to make decisions about another person's health. On this show, we're talking to the experts and leaders who are charged with setting ethical guidelines during this unprecedented global pandemic and the frontline first responders who carry the weight of these decisions every day. In this episode, Doctors in the United States aren't used to dealing with scarcity. Now, they're being forced to make tough decisions about rationing care. Decisions like, how do you decide who gets the ventilator when there aren't enough for every patient who needs one? Jonathan, we're going to be talking about bioethics a lot in this podcast. You were one of the founders of the field. What do you think bioethics is? How do you describe it when you'd have someone who doesn't really understand it? I describe bioethics as the study of human values in medicine and the life sciences. That's pretty formal. Uh, But to me, the key to understanding bioethics is how we now expect doctors to tell us the truth. And that sounds pretty basic, but in fact, that historically has not been the expectation of doctors. Um, The expectation was they would assess us, they'd tell us how they were going to fix us or they weren't going to fix us, but they wouldn't necessarily tell us exactly what they thought was wrong if we couldn't handle it. And I think that doctor-patient relationship, that change of our expectations, that's really how I define bioethics. I think your point at the top is right. It's about how values intermix with medical care, as well as the life sciences and all of the issues that people identify, end-of-life care, euthanasia, issues related to creating new organisms. That's all of bioethics. And one of the things that has always intrigued me as a bioethicist is the fact that this is really ancient. 
I like to say that ever since the start of medicine, someone caring for a sick person, you've had to have bioethical codes. Hippocrates is 400 BC, and there's a reason it goes that far back, because the moment someone's caring for someone with a naked body that's sick, that's in distress, that needs help, it raises all sorts of ethical issues. Then you need ethical guidance. What's the right thing to do in this circumstance? And that's really what bioethics is about. So you would think, Zeke, that we have been well prepared for this by our work in bioethics over the decades, but it feels like to some extent we've been very involved in sort of sexy high-tech issues like gene editing and brain science, the kind of stuff that interests me at least, and uh, and not as much with the way that we are tied to the biology of the planet. And this whole coronavirus crisis is kind of forcing us back to think about ourselves as kind of organically related to this setting in which we have evolved and which we affect and which is talking back to us. It always does, but it's roaring back at us now. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that, you know, it's often said that all the bioethics dilemmas are a result of new technologies, but this isn't about new technology. This is about ancient organisms, viruses. So it, it is a very, very challenging moment, I think, for the whole world and for bioethicists to give advice to policymakers, hospitals, individual clinicians. It just seems a little overwhelming that things we've dealt with in theory and in papers are now real life with real implications for other people's lives. Zeke, I think a lot of people think of ethics as an academic field that is kind of in the ivory tower. But as we're learning now, especially, these issues are not just academic. They're real. They involve real people, real problems, real decisions with real consequences. So in every episode of this show, we're going to start with a personal story from the front lines of the fight against the coronavirus. Yeah. Today, I think we're going to hear from a daughter of a COVID-19 patient in New Jersey. For a lot of reasons, she just didn't want us to use her real name. So we'll be calling her Susan. But like so many patients and family members and healthcare workers, she's worried about what will happen if care needs to be rationed, how her father is going to get the right care and whether he can actually get the care he needs. Susan's father is in his 80s. He's divorced, he lives alone, and he's pretty adamant about his independence. Susan lives in California, and he lives in New Jersey, but they talk all the time. Wednesday, March 18th, my dad said he was feeling very poorly and that he had even been thinking of calling 911. So Friday the 20th, he went to the hospital. I spoke to him like an hour and a half later. He was in the emergency room. Naturally, he like forgot to turn his cell phone on, even though he had it with him. You know, so they had to track him down. He was sitting in the emergency room and they said he was having, uh, I think they told me initially that he was having very bad asthma. No one mentioned a fever to me. And since my dad has asthma, I was like, man, this is a shitty time to have a bad asthma attack. You know, that's all I was thinking. And then Tuesday, he suddenly got worse and they had to intubate him, which is put him on a ventilator. After he was intubated, they moved Susan's father to the ICU. He'd been tested for COVID-19, but it still took several days to get the results. He was positive for the disease. Within a few days, basically the ICU was so overwhelmed that they couldn't do the family calls anymore. So somewhere a few days ago, it started that 
they have farmed out the calling to a guy who's a hematological oncologist who has is not seeing my dad and is not in the hospital and he's literally just like reading the computer for the latest reports and he tells it to me the ICU is so overwhelmed that they can't talk to me and I don't call them I think there was one night a few days ago where I called like at night before I went to sleep just to ask if my dad was still alive and she said let me transfer you and then she just transferred me to a ringing line that never answered like that's a real thing that happened Susan's father lives in New Jersey now but he's a native New Yorker my dad was born in 1936 in Brooklyn. He was an electrical engineer. He was an early computer programmer. Like he was doing computer stuff when computers were not called computers yet. At the same time, he's also a passionate amateur dancer. Actually, when I was younger, at a certain point, my dad was going dancing every every night. So there were years of my life where my dad went dancing seven nights a week. My dad is good at every kind of dancing all kinds of Latin dancing, all kinds of ballroom dancing, many kinds of folk dancing, country western dancing. Like there isn't like a dance that two people do together that my dad doesn't know as well as also like circle and set and square dances and contra dances and everything. Balkan, Israeli, Greek. You know, his activities have kind of like decreased. Like his, as his diabetes got worse, um, the more insulin he was given, the more his weight ballooned and he's struggled a lot to keep his weight down and that has impacted his health in all kinds of ways, making his asthma worse, making his sciatica worse which sort of gives you a sense of like where he's, where he's at. Given his age and his health problems, once her father tested positive for COVID-19, Susan knew that he was in real danger. From almost as soon as I heard they were putting him on the ventilator, because I've been following the news from other countries, I was already concerned about, will they decide to take my dad off the ventilator and give it to someone younger who needs it. Like, you know, you see the reports out of out of Italy and stuff where you're talking about doctors are having to make life or death type decisions. Her father had gone to one of the top hospitals in his part of New Jersey, but she still didn't know if they had enough ventilators. And when she asked if they had enough ventilators, the story kept changing. When I first asked, is there any chance they would take my dad off the ventilator? I think I was first told, no, 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 we have enough ventilators. That's not something that's happening here. And then another time I was told, they're not going to do that to someone who's in the course of treatment. That would more be a concern for new people coming in who need it. They're not going to rip someone off it who's already on it. The first time I talked to the doctor who's not actually like seeing my dad, but doing like the daily reporting for me, he said to me, tell me a little bit about your dad, about his life. And I didn't know why he was asking me that. You know, he was like, does he live alone? I said, yes. And he said, what does he do? And I explained he's retired and here's all his interests. And, and I had this sudden feeling that I was being asked to like sell my dad's life, you know, to like make his life seem worth it to keep him on the ventilator. Now that may not be the case. He may have been asking more for the like, what happens when he goes home kind of thing. But he asked something about like, what does my dad do? Or like something about his life. And I felt like I had to sell my dad's life. Like I was picturing, are they thinking, hmm, does does this guy get the ventilator or this 35-year-old with two young kids? Like I don't, I'll never know if that's why he asked me. I tried to be very like bright and energetic and positive in describing my dad's life. And, and I made my dad sound like all sort of like more involved and vigorous than he is. And I felt sort of like guilty that my dad is an 83-year-old guy who lives alone, who has health problems. Like he's the, I guess, classic COVID patient who dies. And I... I wanted this doctor to think that my dad is worth it, to keep him on the ventilator if they get to a situation where they don't have enough ventilators. And yeah, it made me, I, I don't know, 
I don't know. I mean, fortunately, a couple days later, his prognosis started to get better. And since I've heard for two days in a row that he's slightly better, he's slightly better, I guess I have less fear that they'll rip him off the ventilator. But until he's actually off the ventilator, I'm afraid that they'll rip him off the ventilator, no matter what people have said to me. We'll be right back. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. You know, I think one important thing about Susan's case and and her father's situation is we really don't want frontline doctors making decisions about whether to remove the respirator from her father and give it to some other patient based upon their guts or their intuition or their idea about what is right and wrong. That often doesn't lead to the most ethical choices. I mean, this is why we have to have guidelines and, and not just leave it to clinicians in the heat of the moment. Okay, Zeke, I take your point that the individual doctor, for many reasons, shouldn't be making those decisions kind of unilaterally, and we need guidelines. My question is, how do you implement those guidelines? Who actually decides how they apply? You have a bunch of people in suits walking through the hospital deciding who gets a ventilator and who doesn't, who lives or who dies. I think that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Well, that's actually why I was part of a group of ethicists, public health experts, and physicians who wrote an article in the New England Journal of Medicine with recommendations about how to allocate these scarce medical resources in extreme situations like the COVID-19 pandemic. So what was in that paper? What did you recommend? Well, we made six specific recommendations, but but I think three are really the biggies. The first one is that you want to maximize benefits. You want to maximize the number of people whose lives you save, and you want to maximize the prognosis of those people. Make sure that when you save them, they can live a good, long life. Second, uh, and I think kind of intuitive to most people, is you want to prioritize saving frontline healthcare workers, people like nurses and respiratory therapists and doctors and the rest of the hospital staff necessary to care for patients. Uh, You don't save them because somehow they're special and worthy. You save them because they're going to save other patients. They can actually save many, many other people. And the last thing is that, you know, the hospital and healthcare system is not just about COVID-19, even when it's a pandemic. We've got patients with lots of other conditions, whether it's cancer or heart disease or diabetes or multiple sclerosis that need attention and need care. And they have to get, you know, these resources too. We shouldn't just focus all our resources on COVID-19 patients. So we have to make sure that everyone is considered when we prioritize how we're going to allocate the resources. So I think those are the core elements of the recommendations. Well, each of them raises its own questions, a lot of questions that I have, and I'm sure our listeners have them too. So let's get more into the details. Uh, We spoke to one of your co-authors, Govind Prasad. He's an ethicist and professor at the University of Denver Law School. So Govind, We're going to be using uh, some terms of art 
in this podcast, and one of them is the word triage. Can you just uh, tell us what triage is? Sure. So triage is just what you do when you have more people who need to be saved with a scarce resource than you have a supply of that resource. And what you do to try to address that situation is you basically have three groups. You have a group of folks, we can call them group one, who we think are doing well enough that they could manage even if they didn't get that scarce resource. They might do better with it, but we think they have a good chance of managing if they don't get it. Group two are people who we think are not going to do well if they don't get that scarce resource, that scarce ICU better ventilator, but they will do well potentially if they do get that resource. Then group three are people who might be really sick. They're not doing well at all, but we also suspect that they're not going to be able to do well at all even if they get this scarce resource. And so picking out that middle group, that group two, kind of a Goldilocks approach, or getting to that optimal middle group to target your scarce resource to be able to save the most lives. And triage committees are committees that make the decision about who gets it and who doesn't? Uh, Triage committees are committees that do two things. They help in implementing guidelines where the guidelines say um, who should get something and who doesn't. And then they also help in dealing with edge cases or cases that are where the guidelines are ambiguous or don't perfectly address those situations. So would an edge case be you've got an otherwise healthy 75-year-old in an ICU bed with a ventilator, and then, you know, a 30-year-old with significant medical problems comes in. Would that be an edge case for you? For that sort of case, I think it's really important to have clear, consistent procedures. The model um, triage guidelines that hospitals have been working on use this SOFA score. I'm trying to remember what it stands for, something organ failure assessment, sequential organ failure assessment. Hold on, I'm going to interrupt here for a second to discuss this SOFA score. It's a system that ICU doctors use all the time, not just in a pandemic like COVID-19, to assess how seriously ill a patient is. It basically looks at all the major organ systems like the heart, the liver, the kidney, the brain. It's a way of predicting who's going to do well and who isn't going to do well in an ICU. If it looks like it's really easy to rank the two patients you mentioned with respect to that score, then that's going to be a case that's a high stakes case where you might want your triage officer and committee involved because the stakes are really high of, say, withdrawing somebody from a ventilator, especially if they didn't express a willingness to do that. But when I was thinking about edge cases, I was thinking more about cases where either it's really unclear how to evaluate somebody in terms of a solid organ score, or you're dealing with something that's not anticipated very well in the guidelines. So right now, for instance, there's a dispute over whether you should split ventilators. New York State has said, we're going to try doing this. Some critical care medicine bodies have put out bulletins saying, don't do this. It's going to be bad for all the patients you put on the split ventilator. If your guidelines don't address that, I think that's where a triage committee could be really helpful in coming in and saying, you know, say that the doctors say, look, let's try to split this ventilator between the 75 and the 30-year-old. And other folks are saying, no, that could just lead to both of them dying. Being able to navigate that sort of case is where I could imagine having that committee would be really useful. So you and Zeke published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine in which you made some recommendations to kind of guide these decisions. Can you tell us about the first recommendation, which is about maximizing benefits? So that's the recommendation that we really get by looking at pretty much every guideline, looking at guidelines internationally in places like Australia, places like 
Italy that's been dealing with this pandemic. And that's basically, as I said before, saving more lives and saving lives where people are going to be able to live substantially after they receive that scarce resource. And a corollary to that, it's our second recommendation, but it's also connected to maximizing benefits, is prioritizing people who are going to be essential, very difficult to replace, and saving others. I think health workers are going to be the clearest example of scarce personnel. In our article, we talk about respiratory therapists, other trained medical professionals being potentially even more scarce than some of the things like PPE and ventilators, keeping those people able to provide medical care is the other important way of maximizing benefits. Those are people who are sometimes called uh, force multipliers, I guess? Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. Yes. If you're able to have that one more respiratory therapist and able to both utilize a ventilator more effectively, or maybe the worst situation is if you end up with more ventilators than you have respiratory therapists, that's clearly an awful situation. And to the extent you can prioritize to avoid that, that would be exactly what you'd want to do. You know, when we talk about triage in, in the military context, sometimes some systems give priority to the general officer over the buck private. Our military says it does not do that. But I'm thinking in terms of force multipliers, how fine do you cut this? Would a nurse or a respiratory therapist, in your thinking, be uh, less of a priority to save than an orthopedic surgeon if they are both in have COVID-19 symptoms? That's interesting because I would have actually thought that a respiratory therapist is more of a priority um, mm. in a forward-looking way for saving more people than your orthopedist is probably going to be. Um, in the near term, it looks the, the shortages we talk about look like they're much more likely to happen in people who have the specific skills that are going to be hard to replace for the current pandemic. I think it's important for thinking about the force multiplier issue to tease apart a couple of different rationales we might have for prioritization. One is to try to maximize benefits in the future. So save people who are going to be able to save others. And that's why I, my initial reaction was save the nurse and the respiratory therapist, maybe give them priority over the orthopedic surgeon. I think your point really is a good one. I'm not going to tell any future orthopedic surgeon that you said that, but as you, I think, are pointing out, you really have to fine tune these decisions in terms of you know who can do the most good to the crisis at hand. So let's imagine that I show up to a hospital. I really hope this never happens, but you know, I have COVID-19 symptoms and I go to the emergency room and I don't know it, but this intensive care unit at the hospital is short of ventilators, or maybe it's short of people who can actually run the ventilators. And let's say I have the exact same symptoms as somebody who got there just a little bit before me, 10 minutes, 15 minutes before me. I guess two things can happen. The doctors can say, you know, we're going to just pick whoever comes out of the jar first, or say to me, sorry, we really wish we could care for you, but this other patient got here ahead of you and she gets the ventilator. Both seem to me kind of like random. Are they really different from an ethical standpoint? Uh, is a lottery different from first come, first served? I think one of the big concerns about first come, first served is that people who are showing up later are going to do worse. And people who are showing up later, unlike people who unluckily get a bad lottery number, it may end up being correlated with things that are we wouldn't ethically want to determine who gets ventilators. So people who are in rural areas where the pandemic is getting there slower, 
people who have less early access to care, people who are not getting infected as easily right now because they're socially distancing, if they come back later and end up getting infected, if we relax restrictions a little bit because we look like we've flattened the curve down, those are areas where I think there's reason to be worried about a large scale first come first served approach. So first come first served, you have the risk that somebody who feels ill and has somebody to take them to the emergency room would get there before somebody who feels ill and doesn't have somebody to get them to the emergency room. Would that be kind of an inequity that worries you? Yeah, that's right. And it's not that any system does perfectly at addressing every inequity, but I think first come first serve to me looks like it does particularly poorly at addressing inequities and not very well at saving more lives or maximizing benefits. Govin, is the reason that we keep first come first serve because it's easier on healthcare workers. After all, us ethicists always say that withholding a medical treatment like a ventilator is no different than withdrawing it. But the frontline doctors always like, it's much harder to stop a ventilator than to never put someone on a ventilator. So is the reason we still preserve first come first serve just because it's easier on the doctors and all the other healthcare workers? So I think this is a tough question for me to answer in a way as somebody who is not going to be put in the situation of making that withdrawal decision. I think that having that triage officer, having that triage committee can help reduce the burden and can help even be the ones to implement the actual withdrawing. So to the extent that the burden of that is coming from feeling like you are doing something that is worse for your own patient, having that triage officer or committee there to make that implementation calls, maybe be the ones to actually withdraw, may help with that. At the same time, I think you're right that psychologically it does feel different. I'm sure even to that officer who's carrying out a withdrawal decision that will save more lives. And for that reason, I think there are some guidelines, the New York ventilator guidelines, for instance, the New York guidelines for pandemic flu, more willing to say, will try to some extent to minimize ventilator withdrawals, not completely. You do withdraw if you think you can clearly save more lives, but they might consider a course of action involving withdrawal as being one reason against it when you're weighing the different values at stake in a triage decision. One of the last principles you have reminds me of a story I just heard today uh, that the head of pediatric cardiac surgery at Columbia was saying, you know, we're not allowed to do surgeries. We can only do the most critical and urgent surgery. Uh, He said, this is a sad day. This is forcing me to make decisions that I've never made in my life and forcing us to come to grips with it. You said in the paper that we should not just prioritize COVID-19 patients, but COVID-19 and non-COVID-19 patients should get the same priority for medical resources. There's nothing special about COVID-19 patients, whereas this doctor seems to be saying, well, the institution has decided COVID-19 patients take priority. Why is that? It does seem a little surprising in some ways that a hospital would set a categorical priority where you would do only COVID-19 and no other procedures, even if they were urgent. For instance, I think you definitely wouldn't want to have something where you said, like, look, we won't do labor and delivery or something. We'll just do COVID-19. And that's an area where I think in terms of designing guidelines, you'd really want to think about how much benefit does 
any given category of procedures in the, in the hospital have. There may be some COVID-19 procedures, some say use of ventilators for COVID-19 patients that the ventilators would be better used in some other setting if they needed to be used, say, temporarily. I mean, I think a really stark example, right, would be if you needed to use ECMO, uh, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which is a very, very scarce procedure, it's not obvious to me at all that it's better to use that for COVID-19 than it is to use it for pediatric cardiology. So, It strikes me it's so strange that during the HIV-AIDS era that uh, a couple of us uh, lived through, people were preferring not to do surgery with people who were affected by that particular epidemic. And this is, this is sort of almost turning it upside down. Yeah, and that actually makes me think of something that I've been seeing just increasingly in following discussions around this. And I was asked um, when I've talked to other folks is people have worried about, oh, is triage going to be biased against people who have disabilities or people who have other conditions? And I think a well-designed um, triage policy, the sort that you see in these model guidelines, I think, can avoid that because you're focusing on having it based as much as you can on evidence about how well the person is going to do when they get the scarce resource and afterward, evidence about are they going to live, how long are they going to be able to live, and not based on making these sorts of very subjective, very hard to make publicly justifiable judgments about who's socially worthy or what somebody's quality of life is going to be like or something like that. Govind, uh, you and I began thinking about allocating scarce medical resources. I think we published our first paper together in 2009. That's 11 years ago. How do you feel now that all your thinking is actually coming home to roost and is actually having to go into action? And whether, you know, what, you're, what you've actually been thinking about for all these years is going to make a difference to the world. So I feel... Um relieved, concerned, and mad. So I feel relieved because seeing a lot of state guidelines and model policies that are tracking along with the recommendations that we made and seeing a lot of favorable discussion and people not just saying, oh, look at these people talking about triage, it's chilling, we should just hide our heads in the sand and avoid this question. That I felt really gratified by and hopeful about the idea that uh, fairly allocating resources can save more lives and treat people ethically. The thing I feel a little worried about is at the same time I actually see, and I think it's important to have this discussion, I see some pushback coming where people are saying, no, we should just do lottery. We should do first come, first served. It's going to be unfair for certain people to have this triage approach. And I think a lot of what I've seen there has been really uncritical about the downsides of first come, first served and has not been sufficiently thoughtful about how really, really bad it is. I think something you often see people saying is, oh, triage is just utilitarian, and that's not true. Pretty much every ethical theory agrees that it's a really bad thing if more lives are lost instead of fewer. So that's something I find a little frustrating is if people say, well, triage trying to save more lives, that's just utilitarianism. I think we and the guidelines are all really clear that there's a consensus among a variety of different ethical views about the importance of saving more people instead of fewer people. And a lot of the people that are going to be saved by doing triage that is based in evidence are going to be people who are really vulnerable. So I don't think first come, first served or lotteries are like better ways of saving or looking out for the most vulnerable. The thing that I'm mad about is that I imagine this coming into play in something where it looked like scarcity was just starkly unavoidable. Something where 
a sort of even worse version of the current pandemic where you had something that was more transmissible and more deadly, something like Ebola with the transmissibility of measles or something. The thing that I feel mad about is that so much of the scarcity that I'm seeing, I don't think we're going to remediate all of it, but that there's been such a inadequate, especially at the presidential sort of federal level, response in terms of getting testing out and developed easier. And I'm hopeful that we see a turning of the tide on that. But that's the way, the thing that I didn't imagine was that this would come up in a way that looked as avoidable to some extent as it, as, as it does. Yeah, we're in a domain of, of artificial scarcity, unlike organs, right, which are naturally scarce. And that's one of the really frustrating parts of this situation is that it, it, it didn't need to be this way. Or at least it didn't need to be as much this way as it is. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. You know, there are people who will say, well, maybe we shouldn't be talking about these things at all, Zeke, that, you know, it's just too hard. It's too difficult. It's too painful. But I think you and I deeply agree that it's better to have these conversations in public, you know, not in dark corners. It's not just a question for physicians and other healthcare professionals. These are issues for all of us, and we'll just create more mistrust and more suspicion if we don't talk about them, particularly now that it's going to be so hard to see what's happening around us. Uh, You know, as Govin said, it's easy for him to talk about this because he's not the one having to make these decisions. Yeah, I do think that these are wrenching decisions and there's just no getting around it. And it's funny, when I've talked to people about these kind of decisions, they try to avoid making these rationing decisions at almost all costs. There's a typical response is, well, you just give it to everyone who's in need. Well, the problem is everyone's in medical need and there's no escaping. You're gonna have to choose between one patient and another patient. One patient's gonna get the life-saving treatment and the other patient, unfortunately, is gonna die. That is so wrenching. People run away from it and try to avoid it. And I think really don't wanna talk about how to make these choices. And when you tell them or make recommendations about how to make the choices, you often get criticized and attacked for it. I think one of the attacks I commonly get is that our recommendations discriminate against the elderly, they're ageist. And I think that totally misunderstands the kinds of recommendations. It is true that if we were using race or sex or sexual orientation, that would be an invidious discrimination that is unjustified because those aren't ethically relevant conditions. But age is a different issue. People who are young just haven't had a full life, whereas someone who's 80 years old has had a full life. And that is a morally relevant difference that we have to take into account. 
I think there's another concern about discrimination against the disabled or people who have comorbid conditions. There's a long history of discriminating against disabled people. Disability doesn't appear as a criteria here at all for determining who gets a ventilator and who doesn't, nor should it. And we don't think that uh, disability is a relevant criteria. Now, pre-existing conditions are a different thing because they do give you a different prognosis and whether you have cancer or heart disease might make a difference as to whether you're going to actually do better with the ventilator and survive it or not. So that can be a relevant criteria based upon prognosis, not based upon do you have a comorbidity. It's a prognosis criteria. But that isn't about disability. It's certainly not about mental disability. And that isn't an issue. Yeah, it feels like you really can't even utter a sentence about rationing without making people feel that there's some kind of discrimination going on. It's so tough to work your way through this. And yet, I feel like we have to. It didn't need to be this way. We didn't need to have so much sacrifice ahead of us. But we'll have time to look back and see how government failed in the last few months, failed to minimize the decisions that are going to have to be made that are going to fall on a few people particularly people who are on the front lines. In the meantime, we have to deal with the world the way it is, which forces us to make calls that we never wanted to think we'd have to make. Hey, listeners, we just wanted to let you know, when we first spoke to Susan for this episode, her father seemed to be doing better. But a few days ago, he passed away. May his memory be a blessing. Our deepest condolences to Susan and her family and to everyone dealing with loss through this terrible pandemic. Making the Call is a production of Endeavor Content, executive produced by Max Friedman, Jonathan Moreno, and Ezekiel Emanuel, created by Jonathan Moreno and Ezekiel Emanuel. Our managing producer is Jasmine Romero. Research help from Aaron Glickman. Mixing and engineering provided by Sam Baer. If you like this episode, make sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and stay well. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 